0: Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Sophie Poldermans, a Dutch lecturer and women's rights activist and the founder of Sophie's Women of War. Sophie has documented some World War II history in her new book, Seducing and Killing Nazis. Hani was executed just before the end of the war, but Sophie personally knew Truss and Freddie for 20 years and worked closely with them. And while this was so many decades ago, we're going to hear from Sophie why we must always be alert, know the past, because history has a way of repeating itself, and we need to be on guard. So let's meet Sophie Poldermans and hear her passion. Sophie Poldermans, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Good morning, Kate. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate that uh, you are who you are, passionate about the work that you do, and really that you're spending this much time with us this morning, which obviously is not adequate time, but fortunately, we have this incredible book that you've written that will Really be the, the resource material that any and all of us need to really look at the details of the story that you tell and that we're going to touch on this morning. Seducing and Killing Nazis, Honey, Trues and Freddie, Dutch Resistance Heroines of World War II. And it's now, you know, edging closer to nearly a century since all of that happened. But 75 years ago was when the war ended. And thankfully, you're motivated to be writing this story and sharing it with us. So thank you. And then share with us your motivation, what has been driving you, Sophie.
1: Um, well, ever since I was in high school, um, I was fascinated by war in general, uh, and then by World War II in uh, particular, because I heard the stories from my grandparents, um, and I grew up in Haarlem, which is a city 12 miles west of Amsterdam, um, and uh, Hannie Schaft, who is the icon of female that's resistance, uh, was from the same town. So uh, when I had to do a, a high school research project uh, for my history class um, on a self-chosen topic, that topic was very obvious for me, Hannes Haft. Um, And I was really looking for uh, strong female role models. And so I ended up <laughs> researching Hannes Schaft's life and resistance work. And then I, through a, a friend of my father, I discovered Trusa uh, Stephen's contact details because she was still alive. So I called her up uh, for an interview. She invited me over and immediately we had this bond, this click, uh, and she trusted me with her story. And I was very serious and dedicated. And that's what she liked because I was the future generation um so, she, yeah, she really trusted me with her story. Um, and then she also introduced me to her sister, Freddie. Um, and, well, we had a, a, a bond grew from there <laughs> between the three of us. Um, and um, Truus also asked me the same year I was 16 uh, at that time to be the keynote speaker at the National Schaft Commemoration. Um, and well, that's what I did. Um, and then I joined the board of the National Handyschaft Foundation afterwards. So I personally knew both Trus and Freddy Overstegen for 20 years.
0: So incredible. When you had this experience with First Meeting Truths and her really bonding with you and wanting to share the story, did you have the sense or did she tell you that she really had not shared this with anyone to the extent that she did with you?
1: um well Truise was a very uh outgoing uh, person and uh, she told her story quite a bit but somehow she we we just immediately had this connection uh, and because I was so serious and dedicated she thought wow this girl <laughs> so yeah we had a, a special bond that's for sure yes
0: and as you were doing this, well, we'll call it an investigation, but really just hearing the stories and documenting what their their life was about during the resistance, during World War II. How were you feeling about this?
1: Um, I was fascinated by, by the entire, uh, well, the war setting, first of all, that people are capable of committing horrible crimes. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, I was so, um, it's so admirable that that there's these women, uh, young girls still, uh, who rose up and resisted um, and always believed in humanity. I think that is very admirable.
0: And this is really part of your mission too, isn't it? To bring this awareness to what was done 75 to 80 years ago how that resistance occurred. The wars never end, though. So we have similar but different situations that go on in the world now, don't we?
1: True, true. Uh, unfortunately, there uh, there's something within every human being that will cause conflict somehow, and wars are always there, are always going to be there. Um, but, well, by sharing this story, I hope that people will... Um, try to put themselves in the, in the shoes of others and especially of these three women and say, hey, what are the l- lessons that we can learn from this? Because we have the tools <laughs> to prevent or to respond. And that starts with awareness.
0: Absolutely. And that's what you bring to us with this incredible book, Seducing and Killing Nazis, Honey, Truce and Freddie, Dutch Resistance heroines of World War II, because these were really, in their teen years as it began, very young women who, it's just incredible to think of the courage that they had and to go through the frightening things that they did. I have a difficult time imagining that for myself. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, they were extremely young. Uh, Honey was nineteen through sixteen, and Freddie even fourteen at the beginning of the war. Um, and they they could have just decided to to live their lives as normal as possible, but because um, ideals like justice and uh, a livable world were so instilled in them, they they just wanted to resist. But I mean, still, they were very young girls. So uh, really joining the armed resistance was very unique.
0: And, and that's part of it for us. Part of the lesson to learn is how this uh, ideal of justice, of finding equal treatment for all human beings was ingrained in all of them, each of them from a young age. Sure.
1: True, true, true. And a war doesn't start with gas, or this particular war didn't start with the gas chambers. Uh, it always starts with discrimination and exclusion. Um, so if you act early enough, you, you can maybe change some things or, or respond to it. Uh, and that is definitely a lesson we can learn for other wars and for today.
0: Exactly. And really to embrace it whatever age, if we are parents, instilling this then in our children and being a model, because sadly, there are many opportunities to be that model around us every single day, I think.
1: True, true, true. And um, while there are many stories about wars and it's often about uh, men, um, and there's only very few stories um, about women, and especially uh, women are often portrayed as as the main victims in in war, but hardly ever as uh, the heroines. Uh, But we do have examples, like, for example, these three uh, women. Uh, So that's why I think it's very important that especially the the female role models are presented.
0: Exactly. And you have a website actually dedicated specifically with this uh, as the name of it, right? Uh,
1: yes, I have, well, I have a, a website of the book, but I also have a website, Sophie's Women of War. Um, and uh, that is is more the, the broader perspective of, of really focusing on the role of women in war uh, in the broadest sense of the word. Uh, so it's not only World War II, but I also did research in Rwanda and in Bosnia, Kosovo. Um, but it, it can also start uh, really in kindergarten or uh, at work, you know, the, the whole exclusion. So really focusing on female leadership. So that's what Sophie's Women of War is about.
0: And then, as you say, there is the website for the book as well.
1: Yes. So that's seducingandkillingnazis.com. Yes, uh, And uh, you can find more detailed, uh, more background information on the book. Um, you can order the book there as well. Um, and you can find my details there, of course.
0: Yes. And so the book is really very new, although the research obviously has been going on for an extended period of time, With your, especially with uh, Truss and Freddie, because you did interviews and you have all those documented conversations from over the years, right?
1: True, true, true. The, the book is uh, brand new, but it's based on 20 years of research. I still had the... Uh, interview recordings of 1998. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and over the years, I interviewed them quite a bit and I took notes. So all the research was already there and uh, and is based on, on 20 years research. Yes,
0: And it was as you began the research too, uh, of course, Truce was still alive and Freddie. And uh, as were other very important figures of that time, so you could get first-hand commentary, first-hand stories that are so critically important.
1: Exactly. And that is also one of the the reasons why I decided to write the book now, because uh, I wanted to really uh, shed light on the historical facts, and I didn't want to put any uh, words in their mouths or, or thoughts in their heads, but really... Um, Stick with the, the historical facts as closely as possible, uh, and the only way I could do that was also to really uh, make sure that only first-hand witnesses uh, would be interviewed.
0: And that's another great reason for reading this book because uh, it, it's a story, but it's but it's very much more kind of documented. Uh, case history. Uh, it's it feels different in that format and very compelling to just find out what happened, what were they doing. Uh, it, it's definitely something that uh, we owe it to ourselves to be informed about.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> True.
0: Yes, and and that's uh, you decided that that was an important format to what keep it kind in that realm of being factual so that it, there's no romanticizing of it. It's it's pretty pretty clear, pretty stark as to what went on. <laughs> True. Um,
1: and that is also uh, because I, I knew Truss and Freddie uh, for so many years. Uh, you know, at first, you always hear these heroine stories. Honey uh, Schroft herself was... Uh, unfortunately executed by the Nazis three weeks before the end of the war so she became this huge uh, icon um, and the heroine but I wanted to uh, in this particular book by um, uh, just setting out the facts uh, and the interviews I wanted to show that there's also another side to it I mean the three girls Were heroines, definitely, uh, but they also had to live with the, uh, or Trish and Freddy, uh, after the war, had to live with the burden uh, of their experiences. Uh, They had nightmares, and so there is no uh, romantic, I have no romantic image, They were no cowgirls. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, they were human beings um, and uh, were haunted by their experiences later on in their lives.
0: And perhaps as we live now, we have the advantage of more research, more understanding, so we know that PTSD is a fact. It happens and makes total sense when one thinks of the horrors, the atrocities, and and the actions that these anyone needs to carry out, but these young women were carrying out, the Learning to shoot a gun, having to kill people, which is, they say, is a horrible thing to do. And yet they did it for justice.
1: True, true, true. Um, yes. So they did suffer from depression and, um, and PTSD, but it was not known at the time, like you said, um, so yeah, nowadays they would be diagnosed as that. Yeah, they did shoot people, and they were very young. So can you imagine what an impact that has on the rest of your life?
0: You know, it's it uh, it's very difficult to wrap one's brain around it. Sadly, we hear too much about shootings that go on randomly across this country. So people seem to be, you know, sometimes handle. The people who shoot handle it somewhat nonchalantly, but here it, this is so separate. This is about saving lives and and helping their fellow country people, and and uh, and also how they were thinking about the other youth and the children.
1: True, true, and well, they they saw um, shooting these these high ranking Nazi officers and other traitors as the only possible way, because there was no functioning uh, judicial system, so they really had to um, to act. And this was the only way, basically. Um, and um, with regard to the children, yeah, there were Jewish children who needed uh, safe houses, um, so, that was one particular thing that these women could easily do, because uh, it would be very suspicious if you saw women on the street with children. <laughs> um, yeah, there were a lot of Jewish children uh, that needed safe houses. Um, Trus and uh, hani, uh brought quite a few Jewish children uh, to safe houses, but um, on numerous occasions... Uh, the children did not survive, uh, unfortunately, and especially Trish was extremely traumatized about that. She told me a story once that uh, she was in a, in a boat with all kinds of Jewish children, and then they were bombed by the Germans. So the boat tipped over and the children all drowned. Um, so that was not without risk either and uh, very traumatizing. And Freddy, uh, the youngest... Uh, well, she had pretty dark features, so she could easily be qualified as a Jewish character. Um, and she was really young, and she looked even younger than she actually was. So she she could have easily been um, a Jewish child herself. So she couldn't really help with providing uh, the Jewish children with safe houses because she would risk her own life.
0: And didn't the two sisters... Um- I think it was they who said that they lost their room to a Jewish family because they were hiding uh, Jewish people in their home.
1: That's true. That was already in 1934, so that was six years before the beginning of the war. Um, Truss and Freddie lived with their mother and their um, uh, little stepbrother in a tiny worker house. Uh, And they already thought that, you know, they had to do something. So there were a lot of German Jewish refugees, and they offered them shelter already in 1934. Pretty remarkable.
0: It is remarkable. So how... It's it's important I think to to notice th- that time frame and realize how those signs are already visible before war begins. It's it's a lesson to us to look at the nuances that go on around us that can obviously escalate. Yes. Right?
1: unfortunately, <laughs> Yes, that's why we really need to make sure that you see the early warnings.
0: Yes, I think that that's that's one of the big lessons, but probably the stronger one, because you have dedicated this website, Sophie's Women of War, and written the book with the focus of these young women, is how we as women really need to see where our power is, uh, where our leadership is, to be that instrument of change.
1: True. True. <laughs> yes, and that is often very um, underrepresented, I think. Uh, and well, in this particular case, the the three young women used their their youth and their beauty as a secret weapon, um, in a more brutal way, you could say, in the sense that they would dress up very nicely, um, and then they would uh, go into bars. Uh, and seduce high-ranking Nazi officers uh, in order to lure them into the woods and kill them. So they used their femininity and their sexual power uh, yeah, to, to seduce these men and to to
0: shoot them. And not because there was any, oh, like a thrill to it. It was important because ultimately they saved so many lives by doing this.
1: True, true. Um, And, um, well, there was a whole resistance group behind it, and they had done all the research in advance. Uh, Who of the traitors uh, was a a bad enough person, basically, uh, that really needed to be uh, killed in order to save other people? Exactly.
0: And at least initially being young women or being women, they were able to carry out their work because it was not thought that women would do this sort of thing or be capable of doing it. So so they were able to really carry out a lot of missions.
1: Yes, um, because, well, it, it was always a, a man's world uh, and resistance, uh, Uh, And that's exactly what the the Nazi occupier knew as well, that, you know, there would be men (laughs) and um, these were there were only a very handful of of women in the armed resistance. And uh, in the beginning, these uh, the occupier had absolutely no idea that that was even possible. So they could definitely take advantage of that.
0: And then it's interesting, maybe it was an ego sort of thing, that they became so focused on Hani Shaft and executed her ultimately. But it was perhaps as though she brought shame to them that that she was able to get around them, as she did.
1: That's true. Uh, That's probably definitely part of it.
0: And maybe it was just anyone that was thwarting uh, the occupier's goal of overtaking the country. But uh, perhaps, uh, you know, there was a sting in it being this young woman who was, you know, behind so much of it.
1: True, true, true. And she carried out so many missions that she was uh, really a killer in the eyes of the Nazi occupiers. So really the enemy that they wanted to get
0: rid of. Right. And so... Oh, it is heart-wrenching that they did capture her and that just, you know, less than three weeks before liberation, she actually was executed.
1: Yes, yes, it's very, very sad. Of course, they, they knew that the uh, carrying out these missions was extremely dangerous. Hannes Haft had beautiful red hair, and at one point she dyed it black, and she wore uh, glasses made out of window glass in order to disguise herself. And when she was arrested, that was just a regular check at a, at a checkpoint. She had to show her identification papers. Uh, and then the German officers uh, discovered illegal newspapers um, in her bag. So she was arrested, but still at the time, they had no idea that this girl was Honnyshoft, the famous girl with the red hair. Um, They only discovered that later when they opened her bag and they discovered her gun. Um, And then they saw the red roots uh, in her hair. So they made her wash her hair. And yes, then it was obvious that this was the girl with the, the red hair. So it was really bad luck that she was caught at that particular moment.
0: Yes. And it just feels as again there was just so much anger, perhaps that you know her being able to thwart them so long that they just wanted to basically eliminate her.
1: True, and also the the Nazi occupier they knew that the the war was about to end. Uh, there were uh, agreements from both sides, uh, allies, and. Nazi Germany, not to execute any more people, but both parties didn't stick to that, unfortunately.
0: Very sadly. And as a result, even if she had not died, but certainly as a result of her tragic end, then there was commemoration of her, but it certainly got somewhat political because it didn't continue annually to honor what she had done and and really to keep inspiring us.
1: Yes, that's very true. And that uh, not only amounts to Hanneshoff, but also to uh, the sisters, Truus and Freddy Overstegen. The Council of Resistance, uh, that was their armed resistance group, was not in itself a communist group, but there were some communist members. So uh, during the Cold War, Hanneshoff and Truus and Freddy were not seen as heroines at all. In fact, in 1951, both uh, Oversteegen sisters were actually shot at. They were unharmed, <laughs> but because of their political convictions, they were actually shot at. So for decades, basically, they had to fight for the recognition of their resistance work. And nowadays, it's really only the ideals that count and not the, the political the views behind it. And I think that that is exactly what should count because they didn't act because of their political views. They acted because they were against the enemy and they really wanted to stand up and resist all because of their ideals of justice and the livable world and not because of any political conviction.
0: Yes. And, of course, we'll never know, but all the people who survived as a result of their efforts and what they did, we don't know that. Even perhaps the people who are there still living don't realize that it was because of what these young women did that they are living today. Exactly. (laughs) And so you were, though, as the commemoration for Honey Shaft was restored, I guess. Uh, You were actually then a speaker, as you say, at one of the early ones.
1: True, true. Uh, That was in 1998. Well, I was 16 when I had written the the thesis. And then at 17, I was the keynote speaker at this particular commemoration because Truss really wanted to have a young person there as the, the future generation. So that's what I did.
0: Yes. Remarkable, but and it, <laughs> <laughs> it makes so much sense. And then, well, you said you've been on the board. So do you attend the commemoration, which is the end of November, right?
1: Yes, it's always at the uh, the last Sunday of November because the reburial of Hoft took place on November 27, uh, 1945. So that's why they always use the end of November.
0: And it is an annual event now. True, yes. And so to follow this and to know what is happening and, and to use it really not just to be aware, but to have inspiration to do our own kind of activity, we can find out the information through both of your websites, correct, Sophie? Yes, definitely. <laughs> so let's make note of those once again.
1: Yeah, so there's the website on the book, Seducing and Killing and there's one on the brother role of uh, women in armed conflict which is sophieswomenofwar.com
0: which is great and now you have uh the opportunity to do some travel and to promote the book wherever you get the opportunity correct
1: yes that's correct <laughs> and so it's been uh,
0: yeah and it's been what's the reception been
1: uh wonderful i'm i'm really amazed by Everybody really wants to know more about the story and yeah, very, very positive reactions. I really like that and really good questions from people in the audience.
0: So the questions and the reactions, do you see that there is the taking of this not so distant history and seeing its application today?
1: Yeah, I think they're, that people are really looking for, for stories and for role models, basically. They need some guidance. In Today, there is so many things going on also with the rise of neo-Nazism. And people need something to hold on to. And these girls with their ideals will really help them with that, I think.
0: Yes, absolutely. These key things that are going on in our country here, but certainly we see it happening throughout Europe as well and globally. So it's not an isolated situation.
1: No, it's not. It's always action, reaction, of course. And yeah, I can see it in Europe happening as well. But yeah, it's really shocking. Uh, if you look at the studies that show such an increase in Holocaust deniers, then I think, well, this story is more important than ever.
0: And you are such a courageous but strong voice, I feel, so, Sophie Poldermans, in bringing this to us, having this passion. And uh, it started really at a young age, which is important, and it continues. So, Just congratulations for sticking to your passions.
1: Well, thank you very much. I think it's very important to always, you know, have a moral compass and follow that no matter what.
0: So thank you for also sharing the story through this book, Seducing and Killing Nazis, Honey, Truce and Freddy, Dutch Resistance Heroines of World War II. This is so remarkable. And having this opportunity to speak with you has been such a gift. Many thanks. You're welcome. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Sophie Poldermans and Sunday Morning Magazine with voices to stop vaping. They are Vince Wilmore, Meredith Berkman, and Philip Furman. Click on the on-air tab, then the podcast tab, and look for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of finding your mission and committing to it. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.